Oh, fantastic. Well, I wish I had a birthday story to start off with here, but I actually have a Christmas story because it's on my mind still. I'm, I know it's like it's nearly the end of February, okay, but it was only a few weeks ago we got our tree down. So don't judge. I love it. Christmas trees are amazing decorations. I don't know why they're not an annual thing for us. But I've got a Christmas story here. So every family has, <clears throat> you know, like a quirky relative that, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> comes around, especially, you know, during holidays like Christmas. And a funny uncle, you know, uh, quirky relative, right? That they, they just bring a whole bunch of flavor to those Christmas gatherings. And hopefully it's not all of the relatives are that kind of character, right? Otherwise, you've got like loud, messy family gatherings all the time. That might be mine. <clears throat> but a few years back, I was, in, I was at one of our extended family gatherings, cousins and aunts and uncles, all the siblings and, and everyone. And I've got this one really fun uncle who uh, likes to add a bit of flavor into our thing. So we were doing this white elephant gift exchange with our cousins, and, uh, and my uncle wanted to jump in, and he kind of had his own flavor of one. And, and what it was was <clears throat> he just had these chocolate bars, and he's just like, yeah, you know, it used to be, so one year he actually just had a bunch of like random nostalgic hand-me-downs. There was like a windbreaker from the 1986 Olympics and stuff like that. This one, he just had a bunch of like really obscure flavored high-end chocolate bars. Like, you know, like those fancy lint chocolate bars. You can get like the rich dark chocolate or the mint or the whatevers. And so he's, had a, he's like, here, take a chocolate bar, but you can only take one and you get to take turns. You can do the whole stealing and swapping thing. And then there's that one chocolate bar that just, you know, it's like the one gift nobody really wants. They keep passing it by or it keeps getting traded off. Nobody wants it. It's like the 98% dark chocolate, like super bitter, just like flattens you on the ground dark chocolate, right? Like, does anybody enjoy that? Do you just not have fun anymore? Like, when did dessert become an acquired taste? Come on. Have some joy. Milk chocolate. <laughs> it's healthy. Okay, there's, okay, it's healthy. Again, why is chocolate that measure? Anyways, so one of my cousins gets stuck with this 98% cacao, super dark, pretty bummed out about it. So she hangs on to it. And uh, everyone else is enjoying all these fun flavors. And then uh, we, we find out she, uh, we, we got together for like another family gathering. And what we all discovered is actually my uncle had like put like little cash notes in all of the chocolates too. And so it was like $5 in one and 10 in one. And, and he's like, and who got the dark chocolate one? Cause that one had a hundred bucks in it. <laughs> and my cousin who's really upset was like, I regifted it. <laughs> <clears throat> Is pretty upset about that. Suddenly the gift, she's like, oh, here's, you, you get the chocolate now that I definitely didn't want. Actually had a whole lot more value than she expected. And, uh, and she, I think she tried to get it back in this awkward conversation. Like, can I have that chocolate? It's really special to me, actually. And suddenly it has more value than you expect. Have you ever given a gift that ended up having more value than you expected to have, right? And it kind of feels good, but almost a bit like, oh, did I lose out on that deal? Anyways... <clears throat> That sometimes it backfires, right? Sometimes even being generous like that sometimes backfires and, and hits our mind in a funny way. Why that matters is because what we're doing, we started last week and for a couple weeks here, we're doing a character study on Jacob in the Bible. So in the Old Testament of the Bible, first book, Genesis, which is a narrative of the kind of creation of the world, the start of everything, and really the whole story of how God set up the world and kind of called and ordered his people who he designed to manifest through to reach the world, ultimately bringing Jesus into the world thousands of years later. <clears throat> you have this whole narrative. 
And uh, coming through that, you, you come to a guy around chapter 25 to 33 in that area, this man named Jacob. So just a bit of a recap, we, we first are introduced um, in, this, in this narrative to a man named Isaac, who was actually the son of a man named Abraham, Father Abraham, there's all the old songs about it. And Abraham was kind of the first man who God spoke to and made a very direct promise about a future blessing and a nation. And he kind of revealed this whole plan to Abraham. The thing was, he said, so Abraham had had no children. He's like, but I'm going to give you tons of offspring. And he's like, I'm super old. How's this going to happen? And so God made a promise. He's like, I'll make it happen. And then he has this miracle child, Isaac. And then Isaac has... uh, twins, so with his wife, and then this is kind of where we step in, so we've got Isaac and Rebecca, and Rebecca gets pregnant, and she's got this like lively, active pregnancy, and she's like, what is going on? And God speaks to her, and he, he says this in Genesis 25, 23, uh, the Lord said to her, there's two nations in your womb. you got twins. Lucky you. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. So then the twins are born. The first one comes out, his name is Esau, which literally means hairy. And the Bible describes it just as like hairy animal looking thing. So it just describes him hairy, right? Esau. And technically he's the firstborn. So in a, uh, in a, a society like that, you actually have like the firstborn is kind of the, like all your efforts, all your, you'll carry on the family name, you'll carry on the lineage and the inheritance and the blessing and everything. So it's more important, even though it was just by moments because holding on to the heel of Esau was this other baby who they named Jacob. He came up just after moments later, and Jacob means deceiver, or actually it's a bit of an idiom, it means one who grabs the heel. And, or heel grabber. So it just literally means like, like liar or cheater. You kind of like stole your way out to try to get out as soon as you could. I guess a nice way to give birth to twins, at least it's as fast as possible. But it's uh, in, in a primal genital, genital culture like that, the firstborn is kind of it, and it kind of sucks to be a middle child or the youngest child, or you're just along for the ride, unless something happens to the older brother and it and kind of moves down. Here's where the problem begins, though. Because... This is a baby, the, the promise that God made to Rebecca and kind of prophesied over, said you have this baby here who has a promise and a bit of a future prophecy over him that you're gonna be, you'll be the one who will be served by the older brother. You're going to be great, you're gonna be powerful, you're gonna be born into a situation that honestly by the current situation isn't gonna happen. Like the reality says this won't happen, but there's this promise. So then we go through a few chapters, and just to summarize it a bit, Jacob goes, grows up, and he goes on through life, and he starts using his own wit and his cleverness and his deceit, the, his deception, the way he was described, to force and manipulate his circumstances to kind of manufacture and force what God's promise and prophecy was on his life. He's going to make it happen. And he does this by first off exploiting his brother in a moment of weakness, and he kind of steals his birthright blessing. And then he tricks his aged and blind father into giving him his inheritance by making him think he's the other brother. He starts using this deceit, which obviously, really rightfully so, makes Esau furious. So Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob goes on the run. He's scared for his life. And he's off in a distant land where he finds um, a relative Laban. 
and he falls in love with a girl named Rachel. He's like, let me work for you. I want to marry this girl. I want to marry your daughter. So work for you for seven years. Then he becomes the, recept, uh, the receiver of some deceit. And he works for seven years, but then Laban tricks him and says, actually, I'm going to make you think you're marrying her, but you actually get the daughter who the Bible brutally, honestly says Jacob didn't love her and she was not very attractive. The Bible's just brutally honest there. And so he becomes a, rec a receiver of deceit. He has to work another seven years to actually marry the woman he loves. And he has this whole family drama where there's these two sisters who kind of hate each other and then they end up having this war of trying to have kids and they actually name the kids in ways to spite each other and they want to have more kids so they get their servants to sleep with Jacob. It's, it's drama. Like most soap operas could take a note from these few chapters and just create several seasons of chaos. But the bottom line is there's something about Jacob's life we can relate to floundering through life, wrestling through life because a lot of us, we spend most of our life trying to manifest our lives to look like what we expect them to look like, what we deserve, what we can make happen. We use our skills. We, we have a picture in our minds of what, what we ought to have, and then we use everything at our disposal to make it happen rather than trusting in a bit of a bigger picture. And like Jacob, maybe you find yourself doing everything you can, everything you can manage within your skill set to try to subdue life towards your will, and things don't seem like they're going that way, right? They don't seem like they're going right. See, in Jacob's life, he's like, God, you made this promise, this prophecy on me, and I'm doing all the things to make that happen, but my brother hates me, I'm in a different land, I've got this mess of a family behind me now, and, uh, and, and like nothing's working, what, how, where's this prophecy gonna come? Do you ever feel that way? Like you're trying really hard, and stuff is not working out in your favor? See, we bump into these plans when we think we can do a better job than God can do in our lives. And specifically, I think there's three areas we do this a lot. So one of them is with our relationships. I don't just mean like marriage. I mean relationships like, like interactions, like humans to humans, our friends, our family. And we talked about this last week, about how we subtly try to use people around us to, as just a means to an end versus Jesus' model of sacrificial love and of uh, purely appreciating and loving people and putting them into the place of how God designed them to be, not as a means to an end, not as a way to get something for yourself. And then another area I think we do this a lot is with money, with wealth and power and resources in our life. And then thirdly, with faith, the way we understand God and the way we understand the world. So this week, we're gonna talk about money. Yay. <laughs> Nobody's cheering, okay? You're like, you didn't come to church wanting to hear a talk about money, right? I'm sorry if you're visiting here. I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry, but let's be real. I don't want to talk about money at church. You don't want me to talk about money at church. There's this like subtle, unspoken kind of stalemate that goes on because it's, you know, it's a nonprofit organization supported by the amazing generosity of wonderful people uh, that that funds the lights and the ministries and the things that we're able to accomplish and putting on programs for kids or outreach, literally paying and compensating my time here too. And so it's kind of this awkward, like, and we talk about money at church, how does that work? Now, the thing is, the devil loves it when we're awkward about stuff like this, because then we actually don't get to learn God's intention and design for money and for wealth and resources in our lives. So there's some ground rules I just want to say here to start off with. Uh, the first one is money is not bad. There's nowhere in the Bible that says money is bad or evil. 
You might be thinking, but I heard there's, there's the Bible verse that says money is the root of all evil, right? First Timothy 6.10, it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's a heart thing to learn here. Okay, and the second thing is I am not going to ask for you to give us money. That's not in my script anywhere. And if you hear that, if you hear, if you hear that anywhere, it's probably just the Holy Spirit giving you a little nudge. Okay, it's not in my script. But back to Jacob, okay, because we left him in the midst of all this mess of life and all this family drama, and, and he gets to this point where he's like, okay, I need to do the next things to accomplish this promise I have on me. So I need to build some resources, I need to build wealth, I need to get some power and land and, and some, some design in my life, I need some money and some stuff. So he goes to Laban, who he's been working for, and says, tries to negotiate and says, I, I want to go off on my own and do these things. So here's the interaction he has, and we're just going to read through, we got Genesis chapter 30, starting at 31. If you've got your Bibles, open it up, uh, we'll have it on the screen too. So in Genesis 30, uh, 31, uh, and this is uh, Laban speaking to Jacob in this interaction. So Laban says, what shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future, whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted, or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you have said. <clears throat> so it's really fun, a bit of a, there's a bit of a battle of wits that goes on between Jacob, who has a history of deceit and effective at that, and Laban, who also has a history of deceit, and he's been effective at that. So these two are going at it, because the first thing Laban does, he tries to deceive Jacob, and he, he goes right away, and he tries to actually get all of the speckled and spotted goats and lambs and sheep out of his flock before Jacob gets a chance to do that, and so Jacob will get, like, nothing for his pay. So, you know, because this is a bit of a battle, and they just go at it, uh, Jacob starts using some clever breeding tactics, and he essentially amasses himself over the course of six years, massive flocks of speckled and spotted sheep and lambs and goats while diminishing the pure spotless lambs and sheep that would be Laban's to the point where it's almost Laban has nothing left for him, his family, and his land. Jacob has, well, it says here in Genesis 30, 43, in this way, the man, Jacob, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Uh, many historians and scholars point out that in this time, there's actually a noticeable shift uh, through the history stories that the Mesopotamian uh, land and area and peoples around there actually were in a bit of a uh, depression. They were actually completely lost in life, and yet there was this movement of resources away. Jacob was literally robbing them blind in a way, and that's what the view end up seeing. Laban and his sons and his families kind of saw this as, you've robbed us blind, you've taken everything from us. Now, Jacob wasn't technically wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, technically speaking. He was just amassing wealth based on an agreement, right? He was just working for a job and doing well at it. He is a bit of a businessman here. But once again, Jacob is again on the run and fearing for his life. So this leads Jacob into his brother's land. 
uh, the brother that he stole away the inheritance from, the brother that he pretty much removed everything that he would have had for him going his life, betrayed him, and then ran away, who wanted to kill him. And so Jacob is finally starting to see the results of his actions, his ways, that his attempts at manipulating and controlling his life are only turning his family against him, his his uh, brother, his extended, his wife's, everything is just not working out well and he's on the run. He has no land to his name, he has no safety and no security left. And he's finally humbled and broken. So now when he's in Esau's land, he, he's, or he's driven into his brother's land, he's scared for his life, and in a desperate attempt to please Esau, Jacob starts sending gifts, or bribes almost. He tries to say, please don't kill me, take a bunch of stuff tries to just give him a gift. At Genesis 32, we skip ahead a little bit, 32, 13. So speaking about Jacob, he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And essentially, they're going to be passing on along to his brother Esau. Okay, here's the thing. I'm just reading through some history, right? Besides all the farm animals and the numbers and the stuff, which, you know, we can't, unless there's some farmers here among us, we can't necessarily relate to, but this seems almost a little bit normal in some ways, right? bit of family drama, a, a few business deals and practices, but Jacob's just trying to make his way and he's just trying to protect himself and his family. It's just like normal stuff, right? It doesn't seem that bizarre. It's just life. But what's going on here is actually we're talking about a worldview, a way of seeing everything around us of what is valuable in life and how to harness and master life around us understanding resources as a means to gain and control. And it's very subtle, but I think it's one of the most, most core pieces of our hearts. We see it in Jacob's life here, and we can end up, it can end up driving so much of our life, the way we do things, the way we relate to and understand God, and whether we even trust in God, is how we understand wealth and money. And Jesus talks specifically about this heart piece. And, and it talks a little bit, too, about kind of what Jacob is, how he's kind of seeing the world and how it's, it's working or not working with him apart from God. So we're going to go all the way to the Gospel of Matthew, New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. And this is Jesus speaking. It's in the Sermon on the Mount where he's just giving his whole, his big famous dialogue, his message on everything. This is everything you got to know about God's heart and how your life needs to be transformed to see how God designed you to be. So you got Matthew 6, verse 22. Words from Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus said nothing about money there. Uh, maybe I picked the wrong verse. It's kind of cryptic, right? It's kind of weird. No, this is intentional though. Here's the thing. We're talking about a couple thousand year old euphemism, a figure of speech that, uh, here's the thing, who, who's actually using their Bible with them right here? Oh, good, sweet, we got a couple. Even if, if you got your phone, here's the thing, here's why it's really important to actually like, get into the core thing and not just read stuff that's up there and just trust me in what I say. I could just start saying anything. 
What's beautiful about the Bible is, is it doesn't hide things like this away from us. So in the NIV, what's awesome here is all of the tra- uh, translators, uh, translating from the original languages into English, they all said, we get it. Okay, the words in here, it means healthy, it means unhealthy, like without a doubt. But all the translators also were like, without a doubt, all the scholars were in agreement saying he is talking about this very common, very understood phrasing. And so you actually get a footnote in the very bottom. If you got the NIV at least, it's got a little footnote underneath in that passage after the word healthy and the word unhealthy. And at least here in mind, it says the Greek for healthy here clearly implies generous. And the Greek for unhealthy here clearly implies stingy. So what Jesus is talking about here is what would have been a very common phrasing for saying, essentially, if you're generous or cheap. If you have a healthy eye, it means you see the world with this worldview of abundance, right? There's plenty for everyone. God has, the, the, our planet is the result of God's generosity and blessing, his hospitality, and everything is a gift. And what's beautiful about it, why we would have healthy eyes in that statement is because you see everything around you in a healthy way. You see things through God's eyes. You see people around you who would need help and support those you can elevate and bless. But if you have unhealthy eyes, you have a worldview of scarcity, There's not enough. There is a limited amount that you need to fight for, to get, to secure, so you have safety and comfort, and you need to get what is yours. You miss those around you who are in need, and you constantly think of yourself as someone in need for more and more. And if you don't have, you want the thing. See, Jesus is talking about these conflicting, contrasting worldviews that have been around in the biblical story and in this faith tradition, what Jesus would have grown up for uh, forever. It's rooted in the creation story in Genesis. Think about the creation story. It's this amazing thing where sometimes you can get fixated on, okay, was this order for the animals and the whatever and the days of the things? But there's a big theme that actually goes on all through this creation story. Genesis chapter 1 is God creating and giving and giving. Genesis 1.29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed within it. I give you every green plant for food. God gives and God gives and God gives. And then two chapters later, Genesis 3, everything falls apart shortly after when we get sin entering the world and one of the servants in the garden deceives Eve, and then we get, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, there's this one rule, everything is yours as a gift, but just don't eat the fruit from this one tree. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. We have this narrative of God giving and giving and giving and then take. And now here's the duality of worldviews, abundance or scarcity. We need to get and master and subdue. So this morning isn't really about money. It's about a big picture of our hearts and our understandings of abundance versus scarcity, of how we see resources and time and energy and food and shelter and entertainment. See, things like that in an agrarian society would be kind of like natural trade. But in our world, money is the the, the transferable piece between all of that is how we get groceries, is how we have a roof over our head, is how we have fun, right? Is how we bless each other. Money is that tool that moves all of those pieces together. So we're talking about the heart, but money is the tool that the heart is using 
in a lot of our lives. That's why Jesus goes on in that statement he's talking about. Uh, before, he's talking about our healthy and unhealthy eyes. Matthew 6, 24. See, here's the thing. It, it might make sense like that the world is a bit of a battle. It's a struggle. You need to get enough to satisfy and to protect yourself. It, you might just call it getting by, right? Just getting by. But Jesus has a blunt reality check for us. You can't have both of those worldviews. They don't balance together. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So like Jacob, when you view the world as scarce and as a frontier to manufacture into your own future, even in giving and generosity, you miss the point. It just becomes another tool to gain something from somebody else for yourself. You try to manipulate people or God or just the environment around you. And then you get upset if you give away a gross chocolate bar and find out it's actually worth 100 bucks. It's all rooted in the sin of greed, one of the classically stated seven deadly sins, a powerful force that's at the root conflict of hatred and violence and oppression and abuse. Uh, statistically, something like 90% of divorces list greed or the love of money as one of the number one reasons for divorce. And so money is hugely talked about. Most scholars estimate that among all of Jesus' teachings, there was upwards of 25% of the things Jesus talked about was about money. You could imagine if once a month I talked about money from up here, probably be like a way more wealthy church. We'd be thriving, we'd be crushing it, right? We'd be supporting everything under the sun. It'd be great. This is just one talk, and we're just scratching the surface, but a huge chunk of the stuff Jesus talked about, I mean, Jesus was always talking about the heart, what matters is on the heart, not just the outside, not just the surface. He says to the Pharisees, you wash the cup on the outside, but the inside's dirty, in one of the other Gospels, the exact same interaction here goes on further to explain this, this idea of generosity. And Jesus even talks about to the religious leaders, he says, yeah, you're being generous, but your heart is not about generosity. You're just doing the thing to gain more, whatever it is, influence or pride. Billy Graham said, if a person gets their attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in their life. And I love to, uh, commentator David Brooks said, when people make generosity a part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are completely and holistically. They become people who radiate a permanent joy, and they've given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment to generosity and supporting others. So since the creation story at the very beginning, this battle of worldviews of abundance versus scarcity has plagued us, and it's why God presents us again and again and again throughout the scriptures and in our lives right to our modern day of ways to live differently, to break out of what seems normal, right? A survival of the fittest model makes that seem normal. Fight to get what you need. But God says there's a different way to live. I've designed you differently. So there's an antidote to greed. It's generosity, and it is a powerful force. Uh, literally, you'll have psychologists will talk about the uh, impact generosity has on mental illnesses like depression. There's a book, The, um, the Paradox of Generosity, where it says money can't buy happiness. It says, actually, it kind of can, but not in the way you think. So you can't buy things for yourself, but 
the more money you give away, study after study, shows that it boosts your mental health, it boosts your view of the world, it boosts your satisfaction with what's going on around you. It's, and, and it's not greed like, again, the way that Jesus condemns the religious leaders of just trying to get stuff to just accomplish and tick a box. Right? It's not like you know, if you're, you're having a good day and you go to the cash register and you finally hit that donate $1 thing when the cashier asks, like, will you support the sad animal cause or whatever it is? And then you feel like you make sure that it's seen and you say yes really loud. And then you feel like you're on top of the world after that. And that's not really the generosity that Jesus is talking about. We get led astray. The devil loves to poison even what starts as sometimes good intentions. And then we start to, we, we move it. We need the heart change. And so that's where God actually develops in the Old Testament what, what we see as this thing starts off being called the first fruit. So actually, so with Jacob, going back to Jacob, his, I was going to write it out, great, 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 19 greats, grandpa, Abel, had this concept. Uh, so uh, it was this Adam and Eve, their kids, Cain and Abel, they, they had this concept they already introduced right away of the first fruits, of an offering, of, of essentially a gift to God. And what it was was not just a gift of like, we, we do this all the time, right? You, you make a bit of money, you pay off the bills you've got, you've got the mortgage and the car payment, you go get groceries, you buy yourself a whatever, Netflix, and if there's some left over, awesome, I can donate that. This is the opposite of that. It says the first thing. So the first fruits, literally before money was a thing, uh, in your vegetables and your fruits and your harvest, or even if it was with livestock, the firstborn animals, you would offer that up and then have nothing and trust that more will come. That's a generous, that's a heart change generosity because what it does is it starts bringing God into the picture and saying, God, I'm giving back and giving out because I know you will support. You've made that promise. The first fruits. This eventually turned into a bit of a system called the tithe. So uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, Levitical law, there's a system introduced called the tithe. Literally just means like a tenth, and you would give a tenth of what you earn. It was always talked about like the first tenth. Um, but again, unfortunately, people, we find ways to ruin things. So we, be, we systematized it, codified it, and turned it into this very religiously guilty thing. So Jesus goes after the Pharisees and says, okay, you, you do all the, the things perfectly, but your heart's not it anymore. You found ways to manipulate it and remove your heart outside of the things you do, and you just turn it into a bit of a taxation system. And it's not even literally about the amount so interesting, it's not even, we use like 10% as a pretty standardized, like, yeah, you donate 10%, you give it. But in the Old Testament, it was actually like, there was multiple tithes, right? There was some that came around every like three years. There was a tithe to the Levites. There was a tithe to the temple. There was a tithe to the poor. And a lot of scholars estimate probably added up on average to about 23% of all your income and wealth. Uh, so it's not even actually just a straight tenth. But Jesus constantly brings it back to the heart. Why are we doing these things? So I think there's three steps that we can take. There's three things that we can implement in our lives, here and now, that help us start to orient our heart towards this first fruits concept that actually gives us a sense of trusting what God has in store for us rather than trying to control and manipulate things around us to work for it. And we actually turn generosity into a weird kind of greed. So I think there's three steps. There's three things that we can do to really practice generosity in amazing ways. So the first one is 
to start giving, like just to literally give. If you, if you don't give at all, or if it's not a thing of a practice to just start with something, and to start with something of not just the occasional whatever, but make a standardized, I, I do love a percentage-based system because it's, it's easy for budgeting, it's easy to track, it kind of moves with you wherever your, your stage of life is at, but some sort of compulsory trusting thing of this, this stuff I'm committed to will always be being poured out, being submitted to something bigger, being given back to see what God can do with it, and not just for me. There's always room, right? And that's the heart is, uh, here too, you might be thinking like, I'm needing to wait until I get, you know, enough or wealthy enough and cover enough of the stuff. There's always room to find, to give back to God. And that's again, the trust piece. And it, it, I know it's hard. I know new habits is difficult. Uh, just to give you an embarrassing example that's very close to my heart right here, but uh, f- several months ago, my wife Leslie started doing some schooling, and so she wasn't working, and you know, I only work at a church, so we had to just cut back on a few things, and part of that was I, s- I had to cut back on burgers, and especially the like, late night, right? We have a lot of late night meetings here. It's like 10.30, I'm driving back to Abbotsford, and I just so badly want a junior bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> and I said, no, no, because if that keeps happening, right, you know, it's $2 here and $2 here and $2 here, so we cut back on that. And it was like three months of telling myself no, telling myself no, that I finally, like, it was it, the habit formed that I didn't think about it as the first compulsory thing, like I want a burger. Now I'm talking about it too much, and I kind of want a junior bacon cheeseburger. It came back. Making new habits is hard, but there's always room. There's always something we can remove or shift aside or cut out. And the beautiful thing is that that's where we bring in a little bit of trust in God is to see where he can bless and refill what we think we've lost in our budget, in our income, and what we've got around us. So make it 2%, 5%, 10%, whatever it is. Call it the tithe, but but make it a compulsory committed to giving that you just implement into your way of financing, into the way you see things with your bank accounts, with your budget. Okay, the second part, I love this one. This one's beautiful is start having fun with it. Create what uh, I've heard some pastors call like a blessing fund. If you're old school, just literally have like an envelope full of cash or a jar, or if you do it through all online banking, but start just whenever you got the chance, I've got a bit extra, throw 10 bucks in. Create this fund that you have as an access that is just, it's not designated for anything else, it's not for you, but if you have a friend or somebody you see going through crisis or an opportunity comes up to support disaster around the world and you're just like, sweet, I've got a thousand bucks here, boom. And what's amazing is this is like, this is where we can start making this into worship, not just like discipline and practice, right? And it's not just spreadsheets and money. Have fun with it. There, there's a verse that you often see, it's on our giving envelopes in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about giving and he says, let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty, but let it spring up freely from the joy of giving, all because God loves a joyful giver. Some translations literally say a hilarious, or a hilarious generous heart or jubilant generosity. This is celebratory, right? Go, if, if you want to bless a friend who's going through a hard time or whatever, don't just buy like the bag of cheese puffs. Go to Lep's Farm Market, get some fancy cheese, maybe instill in them a new habit where they're like, no cheese is ever good enough, right? Get some good crackers, have fun with it. Go to the food bank and just like get the good stuff. Have fun, bless people in a way that is celebratory. The blessing fun thing, this is where it becomes, generosity becomes fun again. 
get good gifts for people that they've not asked for. I know a really cool practice I heard about is uh, if somebody around you, like, we're always, especially if you've got young kids, like, you're always sick. <laughs> we're always sick. There's sicknesses just going around constantly. And if you hear about your friend being sick, buy them, like, uh, you know, this was actually, I read about it as much older. They said rent a movie and buy them, like, a nice bag of junk food, just something for their sickness time. But, you know, maybe recommend them now a good Netflix and, yeah, pick them up some cheese and crackers, something that's great, right? Get them some charcuterie. We got to do that as a church a few weeks ago. It was so fun. And then the next part, so blessing fun. And then the next part is increase it, increase it. There's a, a bit of a, not a standard, but as your wealth goes up, often our world's language says, so you're making more, increase your standard of living. The Bible says, increase your standard of giving. As your wealth goes up, look at ways you can bless more around you and trust God with more. Start to consider, and, and again, this is, this is not... None of this is specifically in the Bible. These are just ways that uh, I've experienced, that we've seen practice, that I've heard testimonies about of amazing people who are trying to live out and, and connect to God's heart of generosity. But this attempt of live off the 49%, move to the point where literally of all you have, of all around you, you actually are able to bless more with the stuff you have than what you need to support yourself. If you could live off 49% of what you make. But, but again, as an as a understanding of mentality, maybe you're doing 2% right now, move that up to 5%. If you're at 5%, move that up to 10%, whatever it is. But it's amazing. Like, don't let your financial demographic, whatever you want to call it, dictate how this can be a blessing in your life. I know some wealthy people who give extraordinarily of their wealth. They have a blessing mindset. It's incredible the impact they have. I also know some wealthy people who are so stingy, they haggle over everything in their life and they don't give. Everything for them is to get more and to get more. I also know people who are living just literally paycheck to paycheck. I have some friends, paycheck to paycheck, and they give like half of everything they have constantly. And it's amazing the way God still provides for them. I also have friends who are going paycheck to paycheck that are just waiting and tell us a little bit more. When I make a little bit more, I can start giving. When I can make a bit more, I can start giving. And you know what that means? The heart hasn't changed yet. You're just waiting for a bank account to be able to pay for somebody else. And that has nothing to do with the heart of generosity, a heart of seeing the way God has placed us in a garden of abundance versus a world of scarcity. Uh, you might have heard, uh, I think it's just a beautiful testimony, Mackenzie Scott, who is Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, in their divorce a few years ago, she was awarded $30 billion. And people were asking her, what are you going to do with all that money? What are you going to buy? And she said, I'm going to give it all away. And to this point, she has donated, of that $30 billion, her ex-husband, who's worth a hundred and something massive, huge billion dollars, she's given more money away than her husband, who has more and more. And her goal is like, I don't want any of it. She's giving it away. What's amazing is the people who set the goal to live off of 1% of their income, and 99% of it is just going to see what God can do with it. All of this might sound crazy because... It honestly should sound crazy in our world. Generosity doesn't make sense unless you have a worldview of a giving and generous God who you trust. Fighting for security, fighting for what you need in your life, gaining enough stuff to have comfort, gaining whatever you need just to master and control it, makes sense in a survival of the fittest mentality. 
There's no God. There's nothing to trust in. There is no gift. There's no abundance. Why would you participate in that? But if you have a, if you have a worldview, and I invite you into a worldview of a God who modeled it first, not just dictated rules and says, do this, but a God who modeled generosity first and continues to model generosity and sacrificial giving. And you have that old cliche saying of you can't outgive God. Totally true, but let's make it that powerful. It's powerfully true. We learn from and revere and worship God for his example of generosity all the way to the point of, right, in Genesis, we saw that, that design of God giving and he gave and he gave everything. Then John 3.16, the heart of the gospel message, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He stepped down from heaven. Jesus stepped down and sacrificed everything to enter in. So generous. You can't outgive that, but that's the model that God invites us into. He says, I'm not telling you to just do this. I'm, I've done it for you, and I want you to understand. I designed you in my image. You have my heart. You have the potential to have my heart. Try to start experiencing it. Even before you were born, before you ever chose to follow him, maybe before you ever heard Jesus' name, he did that for you, regardless of the payback, regardless of if you follow him, love him, rebel against him, hate him, doesn't matter. There's no caveats on, there's no uh, constituents on his generosity. It's just poured out. So God, thank you for your example of generosity. God, thank you for the way you bless us constantly. God, thank you for how much you've poured out and the model you set for us. God, I just pray that you give us the courage and the opportunity to see around us where we can be uh, a blessing. God, where we can pour out. God, give us the, the clarity to see where we can start being giving and generous and more generous in our lives, God. And I, I do, God, I just want to thank you for the generous hearts of the people in this church and the people in our town and city. And there are so many people who are representing that heart for you, God. It's such a powerful, beautiful testimony of who you are. So God, I just, I pray that that energy continues. And for here too, we can be a people who are known as one of the core values of Cedar Valley Church as a generous people. God, who are expressing your love and your gospel message through our pouring out and our trusting of you. God, pray all these things in your name, amen. And just a word from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, uh, just as you go, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit, in peace, and in truth, amen. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.